Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And I'm Jim, and this is Speaking of Race. Today, we're talking to an historian who gives us a perspective that bridges the gap between what we did in our last episode, saying that there wasn't any concept of race in antiquity, and talking now about the evolution of very early ideas about race once travel to the New World became more common. And Eric is going to introduce our speaker. Dr. Rob Schwaller is associate professor in the Department of History at the University of Kansas, and he works mostly on issues of race in colonial Latin America. That's the 15th and 16th century. He's also the, the section editor for Colonial Latin American and Caribbean History Compass and associate editor for Ethno History. In 2016, his book, Generos de Gente in Early Colonial Mexico, Defining Racial Difference, was published by Oklahoma University Press. We're very excited to have him on the podcast. Okay, so Rob, our first question for you is, why did you write about this project? How did you come to it? What do you think is important about it? I came to my project because I realized that a lot of the work on race in colonial Mexico, but also Latin America generally, Spanish America especially, the standard assumption was that there was this moment in time after the Spanish had arrived where they had imposed a relatively rigid racial system with very discrete categories, and that at some point between the late 1500s and the mid-1600s, that very clearly distinct system of race broke down into what scholars had observed for a while for the later colonial period, which was a world of a lot of messiness, where there was racial passing going on between categories. And so I came to the project with the hypothesis that that wasn't the case, that in fact, possibly there was never really a coherent system. And that was what I was trying to test in the documents was whether or not there was a moment, especially in the 16th century, where there was a very clear system that worked both in the abstract sense, but also on the ground. And I thought that that would be particularly useful, not only because it would help fill in this lacuna in the study of race in Latin America, which was that we didn't actually know very well what was going on at the very beginning, but then also in terms of the longer history of race that gets us to scientific racism, we get a sense, a bit more of a sense, especially in Latin America, what that trajectory is. In a sense, I was trying to find the origins of race in Latin America. My project does do that. And in fact, what I found was that it's a bit messier even than I would have imagined. There is some coherence in terms of the ideological side of things. But when you start looking at how people are actually interacting on the ground, that veneer of what race should be never, ever works. So in a sense, I found what I I was looking for, which was that it is messy from the beginning, even if there's this attempt to try and order that messiness, and that the messiness and the attempt to order it are, from the beginning, always in tension with each other. One of the reasons why I think we we're excited about your project was because in our last episode, mm -hmm. we sort of ended, we, we covered uh, ancient race concepts, and Jim, I think it's fair to say there weren't any. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. There weren't really any ancient right. Race concepts. And so we sort of ended asking the question, well, wait a second, where did these modern ideas come from? And your work is focusing right on that very moment mm -hmm. that some people will point to and say, yeah, there, there it is. That must be the yeah. moment where it transitions. So that's what we're hoping to get to the bottom of. <laughs> Can we assign blame to? It was very difficult 
to mark when we're talking about race versus when we're maybe on the path to race. I was informed by lots of other more theoretical studies of this, theories of race. One that was particularly useful for me was creating a distinction between the semantic concept of race. For those of us in the 21st century, we cannot divorce from the scientific racism that has informed our moment and the notion of a process of racialization and thinking about racialization as process in which power implicitly is operating, a group in power is attempting to either directly or simply kind of indirectly through ideology and praxis map ideological or mental or psychological or moral qualities onto often subaltern groups of people. And in doing that, they link those stereotypic qualities to some phenotypical or physiological attribute. And by thinking of racialization as a process, it's a lot easier, especially in the period that I'm studying, when the word race doesn't mean what race means today. So our word race comes from the medieval Castilian word raza. But raza in the 16th century, and certainly in the 15th century and in the 14th century, doesn't mean what we understand race to mean. It has some linkages. It means lineage, but it's almost exclusively used to define lineage as linked to religion. The place where you hear this is the Inquisition, particularly after 1492, when the, the, the Spanish state has prohibited practicing Jews from remaining in the kingdoms of Spain. So anyone who is of Jewish descent needs to convert to Christianity. Ratha as a concept becomes an important way that especially the Inquisition is tracking people because it is the, the lens by which they perceive religious lineage. And if there's someone who they suspect is a converso who is continuing to practice Judaism, this notion of whether or not they have raza de judio, Jewish raza, is important and is one of the central questions. And then after they do the same thing with Muslim subjects of the kingdom, raza de moro also is a lens to do it. And then even raza de cristiano or Raza de Cristianos Viejos, right? The Raza of old Christians, that is, families who had never been another faith. Over time, that word Raza comes into English, and at least initially in the 16th and 17th century in English, it's still functioning in that way, that in English, race is ambiguous word that, that tends to fall more on the side of lineage than anything else. But then over time, especially in English, and in fact, faster than in Spanish, race begins to acquire all of these attributes linked to this process of racialization that's going on, such that by the 18th and 19th century, race as an English word falls in line with the way that we continue to use it. Whereas in Spanish, in a sense, it comes back. And it's not until, I would say, it's sort of reappropriated into Spanish from the more scientific racism of the 18th and 19th century. And then in Spanish, at about the same time that the Inquisition is being disbanded, it is coming back into Spanish with this scientific meaning that it had picked up elsewhere. So take us back to the pre-Columbian era, circa 1491, 1941, I don't know. <laughs> excuse me, circa 1491 or a little earlier, are differences between groups in the new world racial or what kind of differences? So the question is sort of like, in the new world, is there race? Yeah, what's going before, on before in the pre-Columbian period? Yeah, 
what's certainly true in the Mesoamerican region, so Mexico, Central America, sort of moving up into the Southwest, is that the primary avenue for differentiation was their community of, of residents. And sometimes historians pre-Columbian period into the colonial period talk about micropatriotism, and that is a sense that most people in Mesoamerica, if asked to identify themselves, would use a term that would be linked to their community of residents, their or their, their natal community. And so many ethnic terms that we have are based in that. For example, the most powerful group within the Aztec Empire are the Mexica. Mexica means the people from Mexico, from Mexico, um, and the capital of the Aztec Empire is Mexico Tenochtitlan. And so sometimes the sort of broader term would be the Mexica, but could also call the ones that live specifically in Tenochtitlan, the Tenochka. For most of the groups, the primary identifier for them is that natal community. That being said, there are a few examples that give us some insight into indigenous appropriation or engagement with these terms that come up. And one of them is in the middle of the 16th century in 1544, the indigenous city council of Tenochtitlan. So even after the conquest, the elites that had been the elites of the Aztec empire still have a municipal government operating in the center of uh, what has now become Mexico City that is operating autonomously, governing the indigenous residents of that community as an autonomous political entity, that city council, the indigenous city council of Tenochtitlan writes a letter to the king of Spain complaining about harassment. They specifically use a number of Spanish terms for race, particularly the, what drew my interest was they use negros, mestizos, and mulatos. Generally, mestizos being individuals of European and indigenous ancestry and mulatos being individuals of mixed African ancestry. And mulatto is in Mexico. Mexico, probably more likely to be someone of mixed African and indigenous ancestry than African and European, which is probably more common in the Americas over time. And so anyways, you have these indigenous rulers effectively of this municipality complaining about other people and using these Spanish racial categories. Having found other documents like this, what is clear is that especially in moments of conflict, when indigenous communities want to exercise their right to autonomy, which the Spanish system allows. There are conflicts with individuals, particularly non-Spanish individuals, but not exclusively. It could be Spanish too. They're more than willing to mobilize these terms of race because those terms of race have been enmeshed into the legal system by this point. And so indigenous peoples are very aware of the legal sphere that they live in. There's two legal worlds in Spanish America. There's the República de Españoles, which is Spanish legal orbit, which also includes anyone of mixed race and Africans, and the República de Indios, which is this particular legal sphere well, developed over the whole colonial period, but the, the most intense development is in the first 50 to 100 years, when in particular critiques by very famous people like Las Casas, critiques of abuses of indigenous people actually lead the Spanish crown to begin to create a legal framework for defending and protecting indigenous people and in a very real sense trying to create a sphere in which they live that is separate from a sphere in which non-indigenous Spaniards, mixed race people, Africans live. And so it's an entirely paternalistic system, but it is one in which indigenous people have some very clear protections from other groups. And so because often those protections mention the racial categories of those groups that they are being protected from, indigenous people become very savvy in mobilizing racial language 
language, particularly when there's a legal conflict in which they would benefit from that mobilization. Conflict produces documentation in the colonial world, but cohabitation and, and cooperation doesn't. Um, and so we have lots of examples of indigenous people complaining about other groups and using racial language, but it's only by reading through case studies and recognizing, in many cases, the much more normative cooperation and cohabitation that we see the, the opposite side of things. What appears to be the case with indigenous people and Spanish notions of race is that they recognize them, but they tend to only mobilize them when it's advantageous to them or when they're sort of drawn into the Spanish orbit and are being required for some reason. For example, if an indigenous person was being called to give testimony in a case, they very would likely utilize one of these terms to describe a witness because they know that the Spanish use those terms, even if in a kind of everyday interaction, they might not use that term of race. It seems like much of the heavy lifting of making racial categories like we're familiar with uh, from the 17th and 18th century, more of the scientific race that you were talking about earlier, comes about through legal codes in the examples that you're giving us. Could you tell us more about that? So one of the things that I found in looking at how race developed was that there's a very close linkage between the evolution of racial terms on the ground and legal codes. And in fact, kind of a sub-argument that I make for scholars interested in Spanish colonialism is that in fact, the work of making racial terms is largely happening on the ground, but it's being codified by the structures of the empire. The way that the Spanish system works is that there's a, a sort of cycle that we can see. The Spanish crown, the king and his ministers are thousands of miles away, and they're always away from some part of their empire, even before we get to the Americas. The work of race is brought into this because on the ground, you have Spaniards writing about some problem and mentioning racial categories. What's interesting about this is that the first time that someone writes back from Hispaniola, right, what would become Santo Domingo, uh, the Dominican Republic, and, and Haiti, the first sort of foothold in the Americas, when a Spaniard writes back and says, we have this problem that there are all of these mestizos being raised by indigenous mothers out in the countryside and not by their Spanish fathers, we need to fix this. The king has no idea what a mestizo looks like, right? He just knows that this word has been used and it's relatively clear from the context that this refers to the children of Spaniards and indigenous women. Obviously, the same could be said for mulatto or for any of the indigenous terms of ethnicity, which also get reported back to the king. And so what ends up happening is that the king is sort of getting these words that are being put into letters written to him about stuff that's going on. And as he's responding to these problems, he's then using those terms terms in the language. The classic example is Indio. Columbus thinks he's reached the East Indies, so he calls them all Indios. Initially, of course, the king of Spain has no idea what an Indio looks like, but very quickly he's going to start using Indio in these ordinances and start talking about what the laws are pertaining to Indios. And the same is true for Mestizos and for Mulatos and for Negros and for Zambaigos and for any of these other terms that evolve over time. And it creates this feedback loop, which then the laws then go back to the Americas. And one of the 
things that I find is that that creates this legal framework of race, that there are laws that define particular rights, responsibilities, obligations, duties, restrictions, maps those onto terms of race. The law becomes the place in which these racial terms live and are also, in some cases, made known to colonial subject. All right, Rob, we're going to fast forward just a couple of centuries for this question. Uh, As you probably know, in the United States, the rationale for slavery usually came out of either the biblical narrative, which is the the curse of Ham uh, from Noah's son, or it was uh, connected to scientific ideas of race, most prominent being Sam Morton's skull measurements. And both of these ways redefined what Africans were as being sort of different in kind from people that were white skinned. So one of the results of this is that when slavery finally ended in the United States, the ideology of inferiority is still set up. And we could argue that that's still the case even now in the 21st century. So how does that story compare to the rationale and the outcome of slavery in Latin America? There is a really good article by an author named James Sweet called The Iberian Origins of American Racist Thought. He looks at the beliefs that become inculcated into American, and by American, he means sort of American hemisphere, but he's also trying to create a link between the way that race evolves in North America and the over 100 years of history in the Atlantic world and in the Americas before we get any settlements in what would become Anglo-North America. And he, in particular, looks at the way in which religious beliefs, both within Christianity and within Islam, begin to see the darker-skinned people of sub-Saharan Africa in a negative light. The Curse of Ham is useful in the process of racialization because it helps explain the enslaved condition of sub-Saharan Africans. It helps to sort of reinforce the power that white slave buyers and slave masters have over their African slaves. But it doesn't actually get at questions that scientific racism will later be interested in, which is why are there these physical differences? Physical difference becomes mapped into environment. And so it goes to kind of older ideas, go all the way back, even in some cases to like antiquity. Equatorial people tend to have darker skin because they're closer to the sun. And so they they are burned by the sun. People that live and are born in the northern latitudes are lighter because they're farther from the sun and it's cooler. Indigenous people of the America kind of mess it up a little bit because none of their phenotypes are quite as dark as sub-Saharan Africa, even though they're at the same latitudes. Even as you move to the northern latitudes, they're maybe a little bit darker than Europeans, but they sort of are able to kind of keep that framework working for a while. There's this interesting strand of intellectual thought that actually begins in Latin America and moves over to Europe because one of the problems that's caused by this strand of thinking is that Europeans then go to these other parts of the world. So a European that goes and would say live in Africa, like a Portuguese merchant that ends up living in Angola, for example, or in India, or a Spanish person that has moved to the more tropical climates of the Americas, the old way of thinking would suggest that they or their descendants who are born there, even if they're entirely of European parents, 
should begin to start looking like the people that they have encountered from those regions. And there's a certain strand in the early colonial period where they're not sure about that. And there's some prejudice against these Europeans born in other places. In Latin America, the term that gets used is criollo. There's a bit of prejudice against criollos because they've been born in these alien environments. Some of that is also linked to the fact that on the European side, they're never sure if maybe that person's actually mixed race, even if they say that they're not. And then, of course, the power relationships where there's always an attempt by European-born Spaniards to kind of monopolize positions of political and bureaucratic power. But what's interesting is that among intellectuals that are born in the Americas, these criollos, that it's their attempt to justify their sameness with their European counterparts that begins to move away from an understanding of difference that explains physical difference through environment and external factors to an understanding of difference in which the physical differences that exist between Africans and Europeans and indigenous people of the Americas are natural qualities. And then it's in fact this strand of Creole thinking where they begin to use this word naturaleza or natural to describe what had up to that point been stereotypes and prejudices that were worked upon people by the environment. And so they're saying, no, these are inherent differences that indigenous people are inherently weaker and have weaker constitutions and weaker bodies than Africans. And Africans are inherently less intelligent and more violent than Europeans. And we as criollos, who are the descendants of Spaniards, have the same inherent qualities of Europeans. And what's interesting in that strand of thinking, although it's certainly operative within the Spanish empire, doesn't actually trickle out as much into other European powers. And so the trajectory of moving from biblical or environmental understandings of race to scientific racism is distinct between Latin America and Europe. But you do see this, in both cases, a shift from thinking environmentally about race and how black bodies are black because the sun has burned them to black bodies are black because they're inherently different bodies than white bodies in both places. But one thing that I want to say about the comparison between Latin America and European notions of race is that there are ways that despite how different they might seem, there are surprising similarities that come all the way up to the present time. Okay. You're awesome. Thanks, Rob. Thank you so much, well, Rob. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help. You can find more information, including a link to Rob's book, in the notes accompanying this podcast. I'm Jim. I'm the physical anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. You've been listening to Speaking of Race. Please leave us comments on our Facebook page and let us know what you'd like us to talk about in the future. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.